Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored of watching people argue on the internet about subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is the editor-in-chief of Aero Magazine, Helen Pluckrose. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's great that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. And listen, before we get into the interview itself, tell our viewers and our listeners a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are. Uh, well, I'm, um, I'm here from here in East London, and um, my background uh, is in English literature and early modern studies, but I came into the, kind of the culture wars kind of via the, the new atheist movement. I've always been very concerned about epistemology, how we know what is true, mm. and about uh, liberal ethics. So I was um, very critical of religion making unfounded truth claims and having all kinds of illiberal ideas about women and um, LGBT. So, and uh, that was the same for um, for Peter and James, who um, did their recent project with us. So oh, we'll from... get onto that. But <laughs> you, yeah. we'll get right into that. So, so from that, when I was um, studying uh, English literature and trying to look at women's history, then the whole problem of um, of postmodernism and theory that's derived from postmodernism just kept coming up and, and getting in the way of looking at anything rigorously and, and ethically. So I gradually, my attention has turned from religious truth claims and human rights issues to, um, to, to ones rooted in, in theory and in activism um, that's sort of currently most known as the social justice approach. Hmm. Well, well, we'll get into all of that and the postmodernism and all of that in a second, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about Aereo, uh, the magazine, first of all, for anyone who's not familiar with it. Yeah, Aereo um, was set up by um, Mal Harmali to try and cut through the partisan divides, to try and be uh, open to a great range of ideas which were based on evidence and reason and and, and try and get the, all the different conversations out there and get people together. He moved on in June and I have um, taken it over. And I'm, I'm staying true to his aim and I'm, I'm trying to get it a bit more well known in the UK. At the moment, half of our readers are in the US. So, um, yeah, trying to, trying to broaden our horizons here a bit as well. And, and what, would, what does it mean to be a liberal? Because I hear this, this word bandied about a lot. People talk about being a liberal. A lot of the time, sometimes people who say they're liberal, I hear them speak, I go, well, that doesn't sound very liberal to me. Mm. So what does it mean to you to be a liberal? Well, I think that what you just said there um, it sort of covers it. That doesn't seem very liberal. If something is illiberal, we recognise it much more easily. It, it's something which isn't fair which isn't uh, free. So to be illiberal is to, is to try to shut down certain freedoms, it's to be unbalanced and, um, and, and unjust, really. So when we are saying liberal in this broadest sense, what we are looking at is people who are concerned with freedom of speech, freedom of belief, uh, freedom of choice generally, and um, people who are interested in in a fair society and giving everybody the same opportunities to achieve everything. It's a focus on individuality and shared humanity. So every individual uh, gets to access everything our shared society offers. 
But I've so going back to my Facebook echo chamber. Mm -hmm. I'm in comedy, uh, a frighteningly hard left uh, industry, and a lot of people tell me that uh, freedom of speech is a right wing issue and therefore nothing to do with liberalism. Do you agree? No, I mean that that's what the the problem that we're seeing at the moment. The the liberals when when the, the word liberal first came about, it was about freedom from the state in Italy and France. And it still, I say it still does, it still should be about, about, about this overarching freedom. But what we've seen happen is the political scene has kind of have shifted so that now we have this hard left coming up and it's, it comes from somewhere completely different to the whole liberal aim. It comes from... The, the radical side of, of what uh, was once the, the Marxist side, but it's a rejection of Marxism. But it, it keeps this kind of idea of this really quite sort of um, authoritarian idea of language creating reality. Mm. So we have to be very careful with language. We have to monitor and regulate what people can say and what they can't say because that constructs our social reality which is in stark contrast to the traditionally liberal idea of the marketplace of ideas where we believe that we can beat bad ideas with better ones and that is in fact what we have done with increasing rapidity throughout sort of the last century so yeah the um the freedom of speech is not always now associated with the liberals if we're associating liberals with the left but the hard left is illiberal so (laughs) we can get lost in the words there because of course in in America liberal is understood often to be synonymous with the left and in Australia it's understood to be synonymous with the right so I think we just have to be saying we're we're talking about the opposite of illiberal. Okay. It must be quite complicated for someone like you as well, because when we were talking about you coming onto the show, you mentioned that you are someone who comes from the left, right? Yeah. So it must be quite weird to see that part of, of, of the political spectrum be kind of cannibalized by this hard element increasingly. Mm-hmm. And to the point where, as you say, we no longer know what a, you know, what's a left liberal, you know, it's become very complicated, hasn't it? Yes. What, what I'm, I'm very pleased to see is that a lot of the... Um, identitarians, the you know the, the the social justice identity politics left, are increasingly rejecting the label of liberal, mm-hmm. and they are associating it with the right things. As they're uh, rejecting it, they're associating it with uh, a freedom, a focus on freedom of speech, and a focus on a level playing field, and not noticing uh, race, not finding it significant, race, gender, sexuality, and they see that as a problem, as trying to maintain a status quo which is unjust. So there will be a lot of crit- criticism from them of liberals, which actually helps our cause quite a lot for those on the right who are in- inclined to sort of conflate the left liberals with the left identitarians. So long may they continue doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so they're kind of pushing out almost the, the people who are liberal, as you say. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because look, we're equally critical on the show of people on the far right and uh, as the, as the far left. I think they're both very very dangerous, uh, and that that's why they have to be. They have to, we have to counter them as you say with better ideas, right? Yeah, and I'm far more worried about the the far right and the populist right, mm. but I I think that is why it's so important to 
address the problems on the left. Because when we're in a situation where people who are not you know, firmly committed to left or right, but are, are somewhere in the middle trying to see who is making more sense, there's a, a real problem if the left isn't making sense, if the, the right is seeming more reasonable, uh, more coherent than the left, then that's something that we leftists need to, need to address. We can't just say, well, everybody who's gone right has suddenly become racist, sexist, homophobic, and you know, not caring about poor people. Some, something has happened to undermine confidence in the left, and we need to address that as much as we need to criticise the right. And why are you worried about right-wing populism and the, right of, and the rise of right-wing populism? Because it's anti-expertise, it's anti-knowledge, it, it's producing quite a lot of the same problems that, that postmodernism is, where we have alternative ways of knowing they have alternative facts, mm. and that we have uh, postmodernism, they have post-truth. So we're seeing a lot of the, the same sort of very, very fluffy thinking, but then you get, on top of that, a, a real sort of problem with expertise generally and with, with knowledge. So our, a lot of reactions to, to some of our work from people on the sort of populist right is, yeah, experts know nothing, universities are teaching nothing, we just need to sort of go with common sense and local knowledge and tradition and, and yeah, no, we don't need to do that. We, you know, need to carry on sort of curing diseases and developing technology and uh, being a, a modern um, secular liberal democracy. And why do you think that's happened? Because if you think, you know, we, we are the most advanced we've ever been, technology is the most advanced it's ever been, yet you get these people now who sort of reject all that. Mm. What, what, why do you think that is? Do you think it's down to the fact that they feel betrayed? I, th I think there's come about a certain complacency and I think that what has happened is that society culturally has been liberal left for so long. The, 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 the sort of really liberal ideas and the, the sort of left sort of economic social ideas have really been dominant as uh, what is good that people have forgotten how to actually defend them and argue for them. It just seems like this is how it should be. So when one side becomes too culturally powerful, it can kind of turn in on itself, start nasal-gazing, and, and really get quite mad. So what we've seen with the cultural dominance and with the rise of the postmodern ideas, which came in at the, the end of the, um, the civil rights movements, all that, all that good stuff with... Um, you know, equal pay for women and equal rights for people of all races and decriminalising homosexuality. And yet, this has come in on the end of that and it's, it's a completely different and mad way of looking at it. So now we've got that happening on the left and on the right we've got a kind of reactionary pushback where there's a kind of pre-modern nostalgia for a time that, that never was, but, you know, when um, there was uh, just traditional marriage and um, uh, traditional gender roles. and So we've got that narrative kind of coming in from there. There's a deep suspicion, which is not unjustified, of the idea of, of liberal elites in universities talking incomprehensibly about pronouns and things. So mm. there's, there's that, but there's the too much of a, a reaction to that you know there's a lot of wanting to throw babies out with bathwater and I think if we did lose our our centers of knowledge production people would suddenly appreciate them within a few years <laughs> oh within a few days possibly yeah. I mean, they're very very important of course but as you said yeah. there is there is a lot of people I think there are a lot of people who feel like as you say 
universities and the media and politics has been dominated by a certain way of thinking for so long yes. that the pushback now is almost a necessary correction to some extent. But as you say, the, you can't throw away the baby with the bathwater. So how do we move forward from here? How do we create, which is what we're trying to do on the show, is create that same center within which people from the left, people from the kind of non-far right can come together and go, actually, we're all sane people, we're all trying to move to the same place. I know the answer to this, it's a good Facebook update. <laughs> That's what solves everything. You, yeah. put a phrase, you say something like, racism's bad, Yeah. up there, boom, yeah. nailed it. Well, other than Francis' <laughs> complicated and articulate solution, how do we move forward from here? Well, like that, now I know how to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, James, Lindsay and I, we, we wrote a manifesto against the enemies of modernity, a very deliberately provocative title. And what we pointed out, which is similar to what you've just said, is that the lunatics are the fringes. They, they are the extremes. But what we are doing too much when we lean one way or the other is looking at the extremes on the other side, reacting against that, condoning or minimising the problems on our own side, and getting sort of further and further polarised. We think that we need to re reconceptualise this and look at how many of us actually value the fruits of modernity. We value science, we value... Uh, reason-based philosophy, uh, strong institutions, the liberal sense of freedom and of equal opportunity. We are the majority, and if we are pushing back at the far right or the far left rather than at people who counter these values, which are yeah very sort of central to the to the development of um, of Western civilization, then we are having. We're aiming at the wrong things. We're going to be fighting with people that we don't really need to be fighting with, and we're not going to be addressing the problems that we should be addressing. And I think it's particularly important to address the ones that are on your own side, because if I know that I share very similar aims to the social justice left, I'm particularly concerned about social equality. I, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in in culture and in groups within culture and whether they are all having equal access to everything. So we have the same aims, but we have very different approaches. So what we need to do on the left is talk about our approaches. There's a certain resistance to talking or being allowed to say anything from that group, so that makes it hard. But we need to, <laughs> we need to address it. And I think people on the right as well need to be looking at their extremes because there's a tendency there to say, yes, look, we have a few neo-Nazi marches to which like, 12 people turn up and everybody else knows that they're, they're bad people. That's not that how it defines us. Meanwhile, you've got all these institutions which are really quite sort of controlled by this narrative, which, which makes no sense. So we're not worried about our loons. Well, you should be, because we are seeing something of a resurgence of racism, of sexism, of homophobia, because we're seeing a bit of a pushback to traditional rules. There's an idea that, um, that, that there's, a, that there's a threat because and I don't want to say that the, the left began this, it's been going back and forth for a long time. Um, in America, um, it, uh, James Lindsay will often argue that, um, that, that the extremes of the right produced the left. I tend to think here that the extremes of the left have produced the pushback from the right, but um, let's not get into who started it. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? But, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think if we've got this 
this sort of um, coming up when we've got this reaction now where we have, um, you know, there it becomes socially acceptable for women to make very ge negative generalizations about men for um, ethnic and racial minorities to um, talk of whiteness and being white as in a disparaging way. Toxic whiteness or yeah. toxic masculinity. Yeah, whatever, yeah. And, uh, white fragility and all this mm. kind of stuff. We, what we're seeing from that is a, a kind of pushback reaction because even if we accept that systems of power exist in which some groups have been disadvantaged and may now be angry and may want to say things that, that we should understand, if we, even if we accept that, we've got this kind of hardwired sense of fairness and reciprocity in us. So if there is this seeming imbalance where it's okay to be racist and sexist sometimes, that does tend to produce a corresponding racism and sexism back. And so I think that goes a long way to explain why we are now hearing more sort of um, openly sexist or racist um, comments, which which are which are kind of reactive. So, yeah, I I, th I think we we need to all sort of take stock of this and try to really sort of focus on a consistency. <laughs> are you saying that demonising white men isn't a good thing? I am saying that. <laughs> <laughs> what a racist it's, thing it's to say. Controversial, but <laughs> I will go. I will stick my neck out and say that. <laughs> I'm going to put that up on my Facebook feed and watch it all melt down. <laughs> Uh, well, it, you talk about the need for uh, conversations on your own side, and as you say, you're coming from the left. Uh, one of the things that you've been involved with, you, you mentioned earlier with Peter and James recently, uh, is precisely an effort to do that, yeah. which is uh, you... Uh, why don't you tell everybody who... A lot of people who are watching the show will know exactly what we're talking about, but for anyone who doesn't know about this whole uh, for, uh, fake papers and the grievance studies thing, tell us a little bit about what happened, what did you do, why did you do it, and what was the result? Uh, yeah, we we spent a year. We, we intended to spend up to two years, but but we got caught. And um, <laughs> we want, yeah, well, we wanted to write some papers. That, as you may know, James and Peter wrote a, a paper before in which they claimed that um, uh, penises were best understood as concepts of toxic masculinity, and they were causing global warming. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, they wrote it. It was very very funny, but um, they submitted it to a journal. Um, which was quite low-ranked, and there was some debate over whether it was predatory and whether it actually had actually shown that um, these ideas were, were acceptable or that journals will publish anything if there's a, a, there's a, a sort of profit for them. So they decided to take a lot of the good criticisms from the last thing and, um, and spend a year or two writing um, much sort of... Um, papers which looked at what we are all worried about, looked at a denial of objective knowledge, um, this sort of whole idea that culture is a... that everything is culturally constructed, and this inconsistent sort of um, a liberalism where we're viewing everything in terms of systems of power and certain groups who are always marginalised, certain ones who are always privileged, what can and can't be said, all of those big sort of things that that we're seeing in action in social justice movements and which are coming from papers in uh, feminist um, critical race uh, epistemology philosophy and those sort of um, sort of fields so we decided and they brought me in on this to write as as many papers as we could and 
get them into the top journals in those sub-disciplines. So we're, we've got one in, in feminist geography. Now, that's not the highest in geography, but it's the top in feminist geography. When we're researching these ideas, we're finding that a lot of them that are, have great sort of cultural power, like um, white, white fragility, like toxic masculinity, are coming from a collection of, of the few of the same journals. So we started targeting them with ideas which just should have been very clearly um, nonsense, not unevidenced, and also unethical. So, yeah, we, we claim that by examining the genitals of a thousand dogs in an Oregon dog park, we could see evidence of human rape culture and get some, <laughs> some tips on how to train men like dogs. <laughs> that, that really shouldn't have been acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, but we've, um, we, we did get uh, yeah, a section of Mein Kampf um, which was rewritten as intersectional feminism, and it's important not to uh, dwell too much on that. We're not that you know, it's not sections talking about genocide or mm. anything, but it's um, that very sort of totalitarian grievance uh, sense, the us and them, and mm. the needing to, for everybody to sort of yeah become one solid group against the enemy. So we yeah we managed to get that through, and. Um, <laughs> We claim that um, that morbid obesity is um, not admired in the same way that muscular bodies are because of um, prejudice, and that there should be uh, that there should be bodybuilding competitions should include bodies that are built with fat as well as with muscle. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a good premise for a joke. Yeah, it is a very good premise. I actually know one comedian who tweets about that all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is silly and often, but that's actually quite a, a serious problem. We have seen, um, uh, you know, the campaigns to to prevent the cancer research from saying that obesity is a is a problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, doctors talking about it, it's a, it's a, a medical as a medical issue are accused of fat shaming, and you know, I as someone who doesn't exactly have thin privilege, I still kind of see that. This is a problem. We, we can't. This is a, a big sort of health problem. This is a, an epidemic, and we we need to actually address it as a health condition. So, I'm quite concerned about um, fat fat activists getting a lot of power. Hmm. How much do you think? And uh, maybe this is me and my uh, brutally uneducated mind. When I see these people talking about fat activism, all the rest of it, how much of it is just victim culture and just unwillingness to accept responsibility? I, th- I think that's being... I mean, it, it, there is this thing where it's good to take on a victim identity now. Mm. Yeah. So if you can claim to have a marginalised identity, then you have a certain status within these communities. So there, there certainly is that. But there are, there are helpful ways and unhelpful ways to look at things like... Um, like obesity and mental illness and the unhelpful thing to do is to take it on as an identity and not allow it to be seen as a problem uh, because that would be prejudiced so that I, I, I worry particularly about that I think that those kind of problems need to be recognised as a health condition which you know, people don't, don't should not be bullied. Certainly, um, you know, people with mental illness. The but the idea is should still always be to get better, to fix the problem or improve the problem. So, I am worried that this is is tying into um, into the whole sort of marginalised identity thing. And I, I think as well that we're seeing that in the realms of um, trans activism, 
because trans people exist. There is a, a growing amount of science which uh, shows us why some people feel that they are the opposite sex to what their genitals tell them they are. And yet we are seeing, particularly among teenagers, a, a growing tendency to identify as um, non-binary or demi-something, which seems to have an element of um, a cultural ideological factor as well, which then makes it quite difficult to identify who is trans and who isn't, and that will get me in a lot of trouble for saying that, because nobody else should judge who is trans and who isn't. This is what people know themselves. But, um, yeah, we, we are seeing an increasing um, ideological basis for uh, complicating gender identity in addition to um, what is, is real, which is the existence of trans people. So that is likely to damage the trans cause considerably because in 10 or 20 years, the statistics which now show that people who identify as trans after puberty normally do so for the rest of their lives. And then looking at their brains, um, I think there was a big study done in uh, post-mortems, yeah, evidence for why they did that um, is found. But what we're likely to find now is a load of people in their, their teens identifying as trans and then stopping, desisting. And this is going to undermine the, um, the, the, the cause of, of people who are trans, who want to transition. I mean, it's a great point you make about young people because famously, you know, like, to, being a teenager is a time of exploration. You don't know really who you are. You don't know what, you know, your sexuality is a lot of the time. It's a time of exploration. You try things out. You find out who you are. Mm. You find out where your boundaries are. And if you're going to... You know, say that somebody is trans at such an early age. Mm. I mean, it's it's a it's a recipe for disaster. It, it is if it takes on an ideological mm. component. I mean, otherwise, where people are uh, sort of unsure of, of what their gender identity is, or they're very sure that it's not the same as their genitals, then there are, are sensible and rational ways to to go about supporting them, um, working out uh, what what they what's happening and what they want to do about it, but. Yeah, when we have, um, I'm afraid it's uh, pretentious ideologues sort of coming in and um, and talking nonsense about about gender for political reasons. That's really not doing anybody any good. And that's what your your papers that you you wrote uh, with the two guys. That's what you were trying to show is that some of these academic subjects, which inform our discourse to a very significant extent, I would argue. They are purely ideological, and there is no pursuit of truth or fact in that mm. subject. So you publish these papers, you try and get them through the through the academic journals. You're successful with some of them. Yeah, we at the time we had to stop. We had um, seven in. Uh, there were three more. We were um, very confident we're going in. People mm. reviews had said this isn't quite ready yet. Get it back soon. You know. So we, we <laughs> this section of mine camp is not quite feminist enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, we were confident of getting ten. We're, there were another two that we thought we'd probably get in. Mm -hmm. But, yes, at the end, um, when we had to call it a day, uh, there were seven seven in. So, yeah, that, and they did, I mean, particularly the ones that looked at um, uh, feminist epistemology, which was something I'm particularly interested in. That um, argues very explicitly that we shouldn't have to go with evidence or reason, that this is... A Western philosophical tradition, which goes along with uh, slavery and imperialism, and that this 
one construction of knowledge needs to be given a back seat to let all these other knowledges come in and have their say. And this is obviously based very much on the idea that, that knowledge is, is constructed and it's constructed by your position in society. So there will be a black knowledge and a women's knowledge and a trans knowledge and um, these will be different to straight white men's knowledge, which unfortunately is, is being associated with science and reason. And I, I think we can <laughs> see how, how racist and sexist it is to associate science and reason with straight white men. Is that not like the most sexist argument you could possibly make? Is yes. that men, are, straight white men, are the ones who do science, logic and reason? Yes. My, my girlfriend's good doing a, uh, she's uh, doing a doctorate at the moment in psychology. I want to point that out to her and <laughs> <laughs> see how far that yeah, gets. Yeah, I look forward to your search for a new girlfriend, mate. Here, we're having a STEM crisis. We are reliant on attracting scientists, doctors and engineers from India, Pakistan, Nigeria. You wonder what they think if they arrive to be told that, they, that this is a, a white, masculinist, imperialist <laughs> type of knowledge and they, they should really be uh, using traditional um, uh, healing practices. <laughs> In one sense, it must have been quite exciting, you know, you're sort of exposing the flaws in the system. In another sense, wasn't it quite, actually quite dispiriting and depressing? <laughs> there, there was a sort of heavy mixture of that, yeah, because, I mean, we, we, we knew what we were going to find. We were, we were fairly sure that we were going to uh, come across this... Um, we were going to be encouraged to be less than rigorous. There was going to be ideological pressure. But when, in theory, we, we had to do a lot of research. People sometimes are claiming that we just make, put a lot of jargon in things. No, we didn't. We read the papers, we understand the theory, we, we get the concepts, and we developed them in horrible ways. So that does kind of take a toll on you mm. as well. I personally, I, I um, had a big burst of reading uh, Critical Race epistemology and um, Jose Medina and um, Barbara Applebaum in particular being white being good white complicity and I, I sort of read both of those books in the same day and, and then in the evening I was just watching a, um, a TV show in uh, which a mixed-race student was graduating and she hugged her her white mother and, and I went, oh, she loves her mother even though she's white <laughs> and I thought what's yeah. Slap myself, but this has gone into my head. I, uh, from having read this, I'm looking at this, I, I'm seeing relationships in terms of, of balances of, of power. And it's, and it, it, yes, it started me thinking, well, how is it when, when there are young people in universities and, and perhaps they are of mixed race, whatever, are they having to sort of evaluate their, their family structures in, in terms of oppressors and the oppressed? And um, recently, after that, there was um, some big notice, um, I can't remember where it was, I think it was at a university, which asked um, students of colour not to bring their white relatives to things because it was threatening to other people. And just the, the divisions here that are... It's, it's just not a way... I mean, even with America, which has this very recent, very awful racial... Um, a divide and an oppressive uh, system. Is this the way to heal it? I I, I don't think it is. And, uh, 
we were talking beforehand about the, the you, about ridiculous examples of this kind of you know these kind of trends of thought or schools of thought. There was one about glaciers that you mentioned in the <laughs> fe- feminist geography. I mean, I'm not the brightest bloke in the world. But how can geography be feminist? Yeah, <laughs> yeah what they the, the feminist glaciology paper was uh, yeah very well known. That that was because it was just so ridiculous. You have to look at ice through a, a feminist. Lens and there, there was some part of it in which there was a phone being attached to glaciers, so there was some kind of communication going on, and it was, it was crazy. And uh, James uh, read that one thoroughly, and he based his feminist astronomy um, paper on that, and that argued that um, uh, astronomy needs to take in astrology, and not only astrology but uh, feminist and queer astrology. Absolutely, could yeah. agree more. And so this is the only way to study the stars. And um, that well, the, one... all the best planets have male names, right? Yeah. <laughs> who, who, who wants to go to Venus? Yeah. yeah, it's all about Jupiter, Mars. You know, that's yeah. all the best planets are go. Come on, right? Let's <laughs> stop being prejudiced. But they, they were, but that one hadn't got in by. Um, the time we had to stop but it, it was one of the ones we were confident about and they actually don't seem to have noticed what's happened because they're still writing to us asking us to hurry up and revise it and get it back to them because in that one the comments that that we got were that this is very exciting that um, these sort of ideas have, have made some impact in psychology and biology but they've not gone into um, the really hard sciences yet and it would be wonderful to see feminist approaches in physics classes and things oh and god yeah that that one really did affect james quite badly he's we call him the supercomputer because he's got this incredibly sort of uh, logical uh, mind so he uh, read the feminist glaciology paper through um, carefully and, and then he just sort of didn't speak for three days because he was just <laughs> so traumatised by the way humans are thinking the just complete irrationalism of it. And, and when you attached the phone to the glacier did it talk back? <laughs> I can't even remember what, what the plan of that was but I'm just, oh we're talking about this this is feminist apparently I'm thinking of all the, the years in which we, we've tried to overcome this idea that women are too silly and frivolous to do science and now you're let's put a telephone in a glacier so it, we can talk to it no <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> well you know the reason it may not have spoken back to you is because it might have been on EU because I never get any signals so that might have been it but um did you get a lot of get a lot of a backlash that you know people came out and go look what you're doing you are you know you are part of the oppression and you are part of you know the the white hierarchy looking to oppress us and all the rest of it yes there's been, there's been a lot of that this has been mainly yeah from the extreme activists type and then um, things have happened following and and we've been linked into them I, only yesterday. I was um, I was told it was assumed that I was celebrating the murder of twelve Jews <laughs> because um, I'm quite clearly a fascist. So uh, yeah, and um, the uh, changes uh, from the Trump administration is is planning for um, that would just sort of um, pretend trans people didn't exist. I apparently am responsible for that. I was told. So that there has been a lot of that. It has been. Um, you are just trying to perpetuate your privilege. And this is what our paper, um, When the Joke's on You, uh, was about. We anticipated this response and we wrote a paper going 
deep into feminist epistemology and, and stacking up a load of things to argue that there just isn't any way at all, not even um, in-depth academic hoaxes, we said, which was a bit of a risk, that would show that people had engaged well enough with the ideas to criticise and disagree with them. And that, that is what we've, we've found. We, it's this idea of... Um, uh, privilege-preserving epistemic pushback. And what that means is that any criticism of social justice uh, approaches is just an attempt to preserve privilege. It shouldn't be engaged with as an argument. It just takes away from the important issues. It needs to be shut down. And that particularly horrified me. And so that, that was why we went into that paper to try and work out where this argument is coming from. And that one was, um, they got a, the, the yes, we want it within eight days, which is very, very fast. And um, yeah, a revision and, and it was in, it was the fastest one. And they called it an excellent contribution to feminist philosophy. Well, this tactic that you talk about, it is incredibly effective, which I suspect why the social justice, justice people use it, which mm. is to, they've come up with a way of not having to engage with people's ideas because, frankly, a lot of their ideas don't stand up to actual logic and all the other mm. white male, you know, uh, oppressive behavior, like analyzing what they're saying. Mm. When you look at it, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Mm. So they've come up with a great, a fantastically effective way of countering that problem, which is you go, well, you're white, therefore you don't know what you're talking about, or you're this, you don't know what you're talking about, or you're a man, therefore you can't talk about this because you can't know, you can't have that Sorry, women's like, knowing. I need to stretch my legs out. Sorry yeah, about that. You're welcome uh, to stretch out as much as you can in, in, this, in this cramped and tiny studio. <laughs> no. um, feel free to. So, Sorry, so what I'm, what I'm saying you. is they've come up with a very effective way of countering logic and reason and research and argument and is that not why they keep coming back with this? Is because it's really effective. There's a, a chicken and egg thing going on. Mm. I mean, what's, uh, the way that you've just said it, it sounds quite, quite cynical. We want to get our views across, therefore we're going to reject um, evidence and reason. Mm. But in fact, the rejection of evidence and reason came first. And the whole system is sort of built on that. Mm. If, uh, with the, the sort of start of postmodernism, the idea was that knowledge is not to be found, it is to be made. And so everything is a construct through the categories that we have produced. So this idea that how we see knowledge now is a construct of um, an imperialist patriarchal age is, is truly believed. So people like Alison Wolfe, for example, in, in her paper, which we drew on a lot, um, Tell Me How That Makes You Feel, will argue specifically... Um, that this reason-emotion divide is not a, a proper philosophical context. You cannot say in a philosophy class, you haven't given any evidence and reason for that, so I'm not going to believe you, because that is to perpetuate a Western philosophical tradition, and we need to give emotional and experiential um, knowledge the same amount of, of credit. So that, that's very, very central to feminist and critical race epistemology. And yes, it does also have the effect of um, very simply shutting down any objection, because it is an, unless you agree um, with me, then you're just not able to see things from my perspective because your privilege is blinding you. There's, there's nothing that can be done with that. So that was really why we wanted to write that particular essay and go really into that to say, yes, we do understand it. We do 
know how it works, we've engaged with social justice um, concepts of knowledge, we still disagree. But yeah, the responses we've got to that is, um, yeah, this is just because you're you're white and the other two are male. And <laughs> Do you think there is some truth to this argument? This is something I've been thinking about in order to try and understand where these people might be coming from. Is Do you think there is some truth to the idea that over a period of time we focused a little bit too much on facts and logic and we have ignored people's what they call lived experiences that do inform us like you know if i was to tell you like i'm from russia right if we were talking about russia if i was to say well when i was growing up in russia blah 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 happened that would have some value to an analysis of what's happening in russia wouldn't it mm -hmm. and do you think that the reason that this has happened is that maybe we've been ignoring that a little bit um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we ever have. There has always been. Um, there, there's certainly been an, an emphasis on um, on science and reason, and there've been certain sceptic organisations which have been very scathing of that um, personal anecdotes or experiences are ever relevant, mm. and uh, that that can certainly um, sort of shut down a conversation because as humans, um, we do have experiences, and often somebody's experience is more important to what we're talking about. The, the example of this that I give is, is if a mother has lost her child, there are facts about how this child has died. Perhaps the medical community are interested in these facts. What is of interest to the people who love the family and around her are how this is affecting her, how she feels. So we as humans are often much more focused on um, how everybody is feeling and experiencing things than we are on what is true. And that is why we tend to do so badly on um, examining what is true and finding out what is true and tending to trust our own feelings and biases to a huge extent. So I certainly don't think that there is any problem with scholarship which is looking at experiences with um, social justice movements which which care about how things make people feel. I myself studied the Christian narrative in late sort of medieval times and how this this was used. This is this is of importance to humans. But what we need not to do is claim that personal experience is the same thing as knowledge or objective truth. We have to keep knowledge and truth separate from perspective and experience. But we can value both. But the reason I bring this up, sorry, Francis, I just yeah. want to finish this yeah. point, is that if we were sitting not in 2018, but in, say, 1930s Germany or before that in America during the time where people scientifically believed that uh, black people are inferior, right? Mm -hmm. It could be reasonably argued that there, has, there have been periods in time where power determined what truth is, including scientific truth, mm. right? So... And that is an argument that social justice people make, which is that who has power in society determines what the science tells us to some extent, right? Do you buy into that argument at all? I certainly um, accept that, that there have been times when science has, um, has supported racist and sexist ideas, but what we have to look at is that power, systems of, of power have always um, supported uh, racist, anti-religious, um, sort of tribal loyalties and, and the ideas of, of um, rigid gender roles, this has been fairly constant. It is significant that it was in the age where of science and reason and evidence that we overcame that, because you can't do science for very long and not 
fix a whole load of bad assumptions that you have about uh, race and gender. The evidence is there that men and women have equal intelligence. There's greater variability in male, mm. but they're of equal intelligence that we have equal ability to um, perform all types of tasks, although women are likely to have slightly different interests to men. Mm. So whereas before when we have, say, the Christian narrative that I looked at, where men are guided by uh, sapientia, the mind, and women scientia, sorry, other way around, scientia, the body, mm. the senses, where then we're... Um, yeah, that you can't really argue with that because God said it. If a <laughs> hypothesis that uh, men are naturally more intelligent than women and men need to be ruled by women is made in a scientific context, science is going to show that not to be true. And that is what we have seen happen. So when people are saying, I am a supporter of science, they're not saying, I support anything that science once agreed with. We're talking about supporting a system, a self-correcting system, which has been more effective at weeding out uh, human biases than than any other. And having watching the left slowly descend into insanity, <sighs> and especially what you're talking about, well, it's almost beyond parody now. You can't really parody it because it's it's where it is. Well, they parodied it. <laughs> well, that's what you guys did, right? But, yeah, that's how it worked. Yeah, but in, in a way, you sort of you didn't parody it. In a way, you just gave them what they wanted, in a sense. But well, seeing what's happened to the left, do you think that just gives greater strength to the to the right and you know the alt right when they go when people you know have put up legitimate criticisms of the alt right and go you know whatever it may be, and all they have to do is go well look at the left. Yeah. I, I mean that that is that is what my primary concern is because I'm unapologetic about wanting to to get the left parties in. I, I want the left to be electable again, and I do think, and we have argued over and over again, that much of the surge of the right to the right is a reaction to the behaviour on the left. If we're looking at people who voted Obama last time and then went to Trump, uh, these are two very, very different men. Do we think that the voters once held Obama views and now hold Trumpist views? That is not very likely. Something has drawn them to the right and pushed them from the left. As much as we're looking at what has drawn them to the right, and a lot of... Um, so I keep going back to America because this is, is where I've um, focused a lot recently. Mm. A lot of this was um, fear of immigration. To mm -hmm. that his, Trump's most popular policy still remains the Muslim ban, whether or not we think that's the correct term for it, which is, is very worrying. But then the second motivation that is, that is often cited is... The, the fear of identity politics are wanting to punish liberals for, um, for for this sort of highly politicized identity thing for not prioritizing the working class, which was essentially seen as their job. So I, I think that we're seeing yes, we're, we're seeing a mixture of things, but I it was so it's been so close on things like Trump and on Brexit that we really need there's not huge amounts of improvement that need to be made to, to kind of shift the, the, the tide back and to have sort of against the populism. Because when I see the left talking about all these things, I'm like, why aren't you talking about the fact that wages haven't risen mm. in however long? Why are we not talking about the fact that the gaps between rich and poor are getting ever wider? Why are we not talking about the fact that the health service 
doesn't seem to be functioning properly. Mm. All these really important issues, which the left should be dealing with, which as a person on the left I'm passionate about, instead we're talking about icebergs, whether they have a fucking vagina or not. Excuse my <laughs> language. <laughs> Yeah. What's uh, going on? Helen didn't expect you to say <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can deal with the saying of vagina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, th this is um, the, the criticism made by the old left, the, the socialist left. We've uh, had a lot of support from the the socialists because they argue that it uh, that the whole sort of postmodern identitarian movement has just taken the left away from the working class and moved it into the universities and rendered it incomprehensible. And they say, with um, which they're probably right, that a lot of the reason that the class issues aren't being targeted now is because it's the, these ideas are coming from people who are really in the top wage bracket. Mm. We're looking at um, the professors and... Um, and academics, you know, they're, they're not hugely, hugely paid, but they are well paid. So there is less of a concern on working class issues and on class issues unless it is blended with some other kind of identity. So having to admit that working class white men um, face any disadvantages in society really screws up <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the narrative. So that's, that's really sort of downplayed. And this is why I get quite frustrated with... Uh, people who try to confuse postmodernism with Marxism. And with, with what we're seeing at the moment is an evolution of postmodern ideas into identity studies. In the late 80s, early 90s, a, a number of theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw and Judith Butler and um, postcolonials, they, they took these ideas and they said, right, we need to keep the whole cultural constructivist bit, but we can't just dismantle everything because we need to look at society. So what we're going to say is that there are certain groups in certain places experiencing certain disadvantages, which the original postmodernist ideas did not allow for. And so Crenshaw, particularly the founder of intersectionality and sort of influential in critical race theory, describes intersectionality as contemporary politics applied to postmodern theory. So we're looking very much at this kind of system. So if it gets conflated with Marxism, which is what postmodernism was very critical of and reacted against, because for Marxists there's an objective truth, there's an overarching structure, then we're not going to be addressing the problem in the right way. We're going to be confusing um, class analysis, which just almost is not present at all, with an identitarian focus on constructed knowledge. And it makes it much harder to deal with. And I think what's happening with this conflation is sometimes it's a cynical thing. It, it allows right-wingers to uh, link their two enemies, the economic left and the identitarian left, and just dismiss them uh, while pointing at communist regimes and gulags. Mm. So that's very easy and, and neat. But also the postmodern ideas and the critical theory that's developed from it is just so difficult to understand. Unless you're willing to dedicate months of, of reading to it, you're not going to get your, your head around even the basics of it. So people are sort of latching on this idea that what we're seeing now is cultural Marxism in that oppressed and oppressor groups have now 
got more different identity titles, now we can understand it. No, you really need to get your head around the, the denial of objective knowledge, the, the mm. cultural constructs, the systems of power. That's the key piece of it, isn't it? Yeah. It's the denial of the fact that there is a truth and, yeah. and the invention of this idea that you have your truth and I have my truth and Francis has his truth. Which but is I'm, the objective truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I was going to ask you, do you think there might be a simple explanation of why, as Francis says, we're having these irrelevant conversations in this country and that's because we're importing this conversation wholesale from America? I do tend to think that we're that we're doing that, yeah, because we're seeing some very strange um, race analysis, which really reflects American race relations and not ours. I um, heard sort of a second-hand conversation with um, a Black Lives Matter activist here, <coughs> who is uh, talking about how much more um, racism Black Brits um, suffer than uh, Asian South Asian Brits. And this is because of this long legacy, which includes slavery. And okay, this this works in America because mm. America has had this long-standing um, superior whites, inferior blacks, which, which hasn't been resolved successfully, satisfactorily now. But they're much more positive about immigrants who have come from Asia, and um, for then so so there is that balance here. We have a different. I think where we had um, an influx of um, of African and Jamaican immigrants earlier, and then we had uh, South Asian immigrants coming, and there was there seems to be more hostility towards immigrants who could be Muslim, mm. so than there are to Africans who are often um, Christian, and I I just don't think this this analysis works. I wouldn't feel entirely confident to say I think there's more prejudice against brown people than black people here but it's certainly not the same analysis as in America. So this is a direct import, and we are seeing a lot of that. I disagreed with um, uh, some professor on, on Twitter who insists that England is, the UK is actually madder than America. It, it isn't. A lot of the scholarship, unfortunately, the fat activism, um, the sort of um, the most influential fat activist uh, scholars are, are here, but otherwise they're almost all... In the um, in the US, and they're sort of being shadowed here. And how much do you blame on social media? Because it just seems to me that social media exacerbates a whole problem, and what it does, and especially the internet. Whereas before, you had these couple of whack jobs who thought whatever, you know, these ridiculous theories, and they'd be on their own. But on the internet, you can find about a thousand whack jobs, you know, and then you, all of a sudden you've got a community, whether they be you know fat activists, incels. Or whatever else you know, and do you, do you think it's social media's exacerbated it? I think exacerbate is the word. Some people have have said it's produced it, and I don't think it's done that. But it has, it's made us more able to access all of the madness and to react to it. And because we are such reactive creatures at the moment, if we are seeing the insanest examples of the left who wouldn't have got on the news or written newspaper articles, then, then we're having a reaction from the reasonable right. And if we see the most insane on the right, there's a reaction from the reasonable left. Mm. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that the polarisation of, of parties, which is particularly notable in America, the how willing people are to talk um, and be friends with people from from the other side is, has just really sort of increased over about the same period that social media has taken off. 
Perfect. Well, listen, our time is almost up. Uh, two questions. We'll go to our final questions in the final question in a second. But we've had quite a pessimistic and negative conversation here. Uh, That's why I've enjoyed it. Yeah, just it goes along with your depressive personality. Yeah, mate. Uh, but is there a way that we can find for what we've been talking about throughout, which is the reasonable people on both sides to come together and actually start to produce more harmony as opposed to more discord? I certainly hope so. I, I am a little bit um, optimistic already. I do think that we are seeing a pushback now and and from reasonable people. Over the last few weeks, I've seen a lot of, um, of leftist academics distance themselves from the grievance studies approach. Mm. And we're seeing we're seeing more willingness to regard it as ridiculous. And we're seeing, obviously, there's, there's um, also the the problems on the far right and we're, we're we're addressing those I think quite well so I am I, I am optimistic that people are going to get sick of extreme irrational views and they're just going to going to say enough but I think it's going to probably get a bit worse before it gets it gets better and, and we can hopefully yeah, it sort of speed up this process by trying to talk across the divides ourselves and by looking, talking in terms of of being reasonable, of being evidenced, of being consistent, the ethical, rather than in terms of those lefties and those righties. Yeah. Well, that's what we try and do on the show. Other than the consistently ethical, we, we struggle with that. <laughs> um, but listen, the question we always like to ask at the end is, what is the one thing that you think we're not talking about that we absolutely should be talking about? I don't think we're talking about how we know things are true. And I don't think we're, we're doing that enough. Very few people consider their epistemology now. They're just, um, there's a kind of acceptance of what is in the air. So we really need to start thinking again about how do I know this is true? What is the process there? And we need to be consistently ethical. We need to focus on the individual and our shared humanity. Identity categories matter, certainly. That is a, an aspect of people. But we cannot lose individuality or common humanity for that. Perfect. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, Helen. Yeah, uh, if people want to me. follow you, you're on Twitter at... At H Pluckrose. And very, very active there. Oh, yes. And <laughs> very active. And I, I was following with interest what you you get involved in. Uh, even last night, I think, before you were coming here, you were involved in this massive argument and eventually went, OK, I've got to go and speak to Trigonometry tomorrow, so I'm going <laughs> yeah. to bed. Yes. Uh, so follow Helen, uh, follow Helen H Pluckrose. And Aero Magazine is at... Yeah, um, aereo, aereomagazine.com.com. Perfect. Well, check that out, guys. Um, do you want to do the rest yeah, of it? Well, yeah, we'll wrap up. Uh, just to say, if uh, thank you very much for watching the episode. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please subscribe. Click the bell button, which on the I think it's on the right of the screen. That will give on you... On the far no, right. On the far right of the screen. <laughs> uh, the best site, no joking. <laughs> <laughs> on the, uh, that will give you notifications. If you're listening to this on iTunes, if you could leave us a review, we'd be insanely grateful. Um, five stars, please. And uh, lastly, if you are enjoying it and you don't want to do any of these things, but you are enjoying it, tweet us, say something nice, or tell a friend. We're at, at TriggerPod on all yeah, the social media. Absolutely, and it's TriggerPod on all social media. And if you didn't like it, tell someone you hate. <laughs> That's what you need to do. Uh, but we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.